Hello, Shocker Nation, and welcome to the May 2022 episode of Forward Together Podcast. Today, we're celebrating the Hispanic community and culture in Wichita. My guests today are members of the Wichita State faculty and specialize in researching Latinx culture in Wichita, the United States, and the world. First, I'd like to welcome Dr. Enrique Navarro, Associate Professor of Spanish. Enrique has led several projects to learn more and elevate awareness of Wichita's Hispanic population, particularly on the North End. Hola, Enrique. Hola, Rick. It's great to see you and uh, always good to have the uh, uh, opportunity to talk to you more about what you're doing and, and your research and your classroom and uh, just what, what's going on here at Wichita State. I want to first start by talking about your work on uh, the SOMAS Wichita, a website you and another faculty member, Dr. Jay Price, uh, started a couple of years ago. Talk to me about what spurred your interest in that project and how that all got started. Well, the, the project started in uh, 2019. That was uh, before uh, Wichita celebrated uh, its uh, 150th anniversary. And of course, uh, media paid uh, more attention to the history of the, of the city of Wichita, and a, a lot of uh, books uh, came out. And we realized that the minority were not represented in, in, those, uh, in those books. Um, at times, there were uh, like footnotes. Um, and, and we thought that maybe it was needed to document the, the history of the Latino population uh, in Wichita. Um, we, the, the, there was some, uh, some work uh, previous, previously done. For example, WSU alumni uh, Caroline Benitez, uh, she did some research about one of the neighborhoods, uh, El Guarache, uh, and, and there is information that is available uh, special collections, uh, WSU uh, libraries. Um, and Jay had already worked in, uh, in, uh, in other projects. Uh, he had uh, co-authored one, one book about African-Americans in Wichita, another one, another one about uh, the Lebanese population uh, in the city. But somehow this was a piece that was, uh, that was missing. Um, we were uh, really fortunate to get funding from uh, both uh, the University of WSU and uh, Humanities uh, Kansas. At the beginning, the project was uh, was a physical exhibit. It was a pop-up uh, exhibit. But with COVID, it, it became a digital exhibit, a website. Uh, and basically, the idea that we had for this project uh, was uh, to create a platform so that uh, rather than really uh, doing research uh, about the community, or, uh, or uh, working with, with the community and considering the, the community as an object of our research or the subject of our research, this was really a project for the community and done with the community. And basically we had this platform and the idea it was to give an opportunity uh, for the Latino and Hispanic community uh, in the city uh, to, to tell their, their stories. And uh, basically what we did was to reach out to them uh, ask them to provide us with uh, family pictures and with the stories. Um, and the committee was always involved in this project. Uh, there was one, one member, uh, Anita Mendoza, that was basically the voice of the community. So when we did uh, any kind of selection of pictures, uh, when we did the, uh, the captions for the pictures, she was there. And, and, uh, and that way, uh, we did, this really became a, a community-based uh, research project. Yeah, and, and it's online too, so it can be continually updated. And, you know, 
listening to you talk, uh, I've been at the university for 26 years, and we've seen the student population change pretty dramatically over that mm-hmm. time, particularly in the last 10 years. And our fastest growing segment of our student population are those that identify as Hispanic students. Mm-hmm. And it's at some point, probably in the next decade, we would be considered an Hispanic serving institution. Now, a lot of things have to happen in our policies and just not a, just not a matter of enrolling Hispanic students who identify in that way, but it's also supporting them, providing opportunities for them at the university so they'll excel and be able to go on, graduate, and live productive lives. But at some point, um, the technical definition is that uh, 25% of our student body will identify as Hispanic uh, in, in, in how they come into the university, and that would classify us as a Hispanic-serving institution in the United States, which opens up all kinds of additional opportunities for funding uh, for those students um, and for the university to support them. And I, I don't think, just after evaluating this and seeing the rapid growth in our Hispanic population, I don't think people really understand the importance that that particular population brings to our city. So it's so glad mm-hmm. that, I'm so glad to hear that you're that you're working um, with your colleagues to to bring those stories forward because um, they're they're so important to who we are as a community. Thank you. And some from that project, um, you published a book. Mm-hmm. Here's the book um, that was published just a couple of months ago. Was yes, that, in February. I was yeah. at that uh, signing at a <laughs> local bookstore here, um, and which I've read and enjoyed. Can you tell me a little bit more about? Um, how that came about. I'm assuming it grew out of this um, project that you just described. The the book uh, was really like a, a spin-off of the of the website. Uh, we realized that we had a lot of uh, pictures um, from Mexican American families, especially those that live in one neighborhood uh, in the city, the North End. The North End is really a multicultural neighborhood, but we decided just to focus on this. Uh, uh, this population, this community that live in that neighbor, in in this neighborhood mm-hmm. or that neighborhood, um, and uh, basically the the philosophy was exact, was exactly the same. We thought about the book also as a platform. We reached out to the community, um, and um, and uh, because of COVID, we had to we had to be more uh, creative. Uh, obviously, we had some scanning events, but the uh, social media was crush, uh, crucial uh, uh, for for the book. And uh, one of the one of the one of the members, one of the uh, co-authors of, of the book, Anita Mendoza, um, she's a founding faculty, a founding member of the uh, Northern Wichita Historical Society, and they set up a page on on Facebook. Uh, they had over. Um, uh, 1,000 members, and uh, and that the this this uh, this Facebook page gave uh, families the opportunity to share uh, some pictures, also to the, to identify people in all uh, photographs. Uh, they gave us a, a lot of information about uh, when probably a photograph was taken, what was going on at, at the time. So uh, med- uh, social media was crucial uh, for for uh, for this book. And it has it had the same philosophy uh, of uh, creating a, fl- a platform for the community uh, to tell uh, to tell the, their story. So, what's been the response um, to to this book and just the showcasing of the the stories that are associated with our city? 
Yeah, it has been impressive. I mean, I, I, I remember that uh, we did a public presentation of the book in the neighborhood in the, in the North End. Uh, it was uh, really emotional because uh, we, had, uh, we had high school friends uh, that met there after 15, 20 years, uh, a lot of memories that they share with us. And, uh, and they were so grateful, so grateful. And uh, there, there is a, at the end of the book, there is, there is a text that explains how Mexican-Americans, and that is something that you can apply to, uh, to Hispanics as well, uh, Mexican-Americans, they don't, they don't brag about themselves. Mm -hmm. um, at times, they don't, re they don't recognize uh, uh, their merits. Um, and somehow, if you connect that with, uh, with the history of this population uh, that has been discriminated uh, until the 1960s and, and to certain extent still today, um, I feel that the book was something that as a, a community they needed. Uh, because there was some of, uh, a sort of uh, sense of recognition, um, and uh, somehow they they felt that someone that came uh, from outside the community uh, was telling them that uh, their stories and their history matters, that their contributions to the city of Wichita matters, uh, and I think that for that reason, that the first meeting, that public presentation with the community was so emotional. And uh, for me, that is something that I think that I will never forget. Yeah, it's good to hear those stories and um, the impact that you've made. Um, so what do you have um, planned to expand this further? Well, what, what we have done so far is, is just to focus on one of the Latinos, uh, Latino subgroups, that is the Mexican-Americans. Obviously, we can do the same with, for example, Central Americans, with uh, with uh, communities that come from the Caribbean here in the in the city of Wichita or somewhere somewhere else in in Kansas. So uh, there is, I mean, there is a lot of things that we we can do uh, based on on the on the experience that we have gained with these two projects. Yeah. So uh, tell me, where do you see the fastest growth or the the the, the increased number of individuals uh, populating, you know, you, you said you mentioned Mexican-American, mm -hmm. Central American, South Americans. Do you see any kind of pattern of, of, of individuals coming to this part of the country and settling here in Wichita? In your research, have you noticed anything? In well, ba basically, the, the majority of the of the Hispanic population that we have here in town and in Kansas, they are they are of Mexican descent. But uh, starting in the 1980s, uh, what we have seen is a growth in the number of uh, of uh, of people uh, of Mex of uh, that come from Central America, uh, and for example, if you take an, into account the Hurricane Maria, uh, with Hurricane Maria we saw an an increase of uh, of students that came from Puerto Rico. So at times uh, it, it is it is uh, really a geopolitical uh, thing that depending on what, on what happens in in, uh, in Latin America, you are going to have you are going to see an increase in one of, uh, of those populations or the other. Well, this is great. Thank you so much for, for being here today and um, talking about your book and, and the work that you're doing and uh, for Wichita and for Wichita State University as well. Um, it's very interesting. I look forward to hearing more about it as time goes on. So thank you again for being here. Thank you. My next guest is Dr. Rocio de Aguila, Wichita State's graduate coordinator and associate professor of Spanish. Chio, as I like to call her, 
and she likes for people to call her Chio. As you can see uh, in front of me, the spread has a particular interest in studying Latin American food, culture, and celebrations. And she recently published a book called Food Studies in the Latin American Literature, Perspectives on the Gastro-Narrative. Now, if you're listening through an audio platform, be sure to log on to Wichita State's YouTube channel so you can see this delicious food presentation. But if you can't do that, we're going to make sure you have a fantastic audio experience. Chio, it's so good for you to be here today to talk about your interest in food and culture. Here's the book that you recently published. Tell us a little bit more about it and how you got to this point of publishing this book. Thank you, Rick, and thank, thank you for inviting me. Um, I started working on food studies a couple of years ago, and it's an evolving field, and there's so many things that uh, you can do. But I'm a 19th century uh, literature, Latin American literature specialist, so um, I started working more on recipe books and ingredients and other things that I found through literature in that area. And uh, at the moment we decided we, we have to make this book because there's not a lot written about it. So um, I collaborated with Vanessa Miseres, a colleague of mine from Notre Dame, and we um, created a list of possible collaborators. And three years later, there is this book. We have chapters on barbecue and how important it is in Latin America. We have a whole chapter about food representation in the case of potato, for example, because it's such an important ingredient for everyone, but also it's um, depicted in different ways, for example, in, in on films and in uh, media. So we have that. We have a lot of 19th century travelers, immigrants, for example, as well. And there is, of course, a very much a theoretical approach to it as well. So it's it's a very, uh, there are 14 different articles in there, and it's very interesting. So we hope you would like it. Well, yeah, and I'm just looking at this perspectives on the gastro-narrative. So tell me about the gastro-narrative. Uh, I've, I've never seen that word before. We, I think that we coined that term uh, because we were... Um, deciding how to name it. And originally the book for us was gastro-narratives, right? How is book presented, represented, and what it means into the text? So it's not just uh, very much that superficial idea of, oh, there's book and, and that's it. But every time the book appears, uh, that, that food appears in the book or in the narrative, it is it is clicking something. It is bringing memories. It's bringing family. It's bringing culture. And it has even even it, it's such as an important part of the book that even um, can create uh, the development and can force the development of, of of whatever the story it is. So we thought about how important food was for this narratives and that's how we ended up with gastro narratives well, I, that's awesome to hear so now i'm not at all surprised by what you have in front of us because i have been the recipient numerous times from you of food being dropped off in my front step of my house um, mostly because of covid recently but you've come in before but uh, when before covid but we have some awesome looking, beautiful food here in front of us. So what, those that are listening, we have uh, a, a board of savory items and then we have another plate of sweet items in here. So let, let's talk about the savory first and 
I want you to describe um, each of these six things that you have uh, on this particular savory board. Um, and I would recommend to start with the gazpacho because that's the one that um, really gets my students, or, uh, they, get, they get out of their comfort zone. Um, the first, I, I teach a class on food and culture in the, uh, for first year students. Mm, and, and they start the mm. class. This is a, a, a cold tomato soup from Spain. And I, I think that if you can get out of your, out of your comfort zone by tasting this and, and drinking that, they, they realize that there are so many other things that they can try, not only, of course, in the sense of food, but um, through their experience as college students. So it's really uh, a very interesting thing for me to, to, to start with. Um, then I try to, um, for this, I try to bring ingredients for different parts of Latin America. So for example, you have an empanada, and this is an Argentinian empanada, that it's, um, it's, a, it's a pastry basically filled with meat. Um, uh, so the dough is- I'm just gonna grab my hand and eat it like this right <laughs> I've had this before. You've made this yes. before. Yes. It's, it's one of my favorite things to eat because in Peru, I'm Peruvian. Mm. In Peru, we eat a lot of empanadas. And it's like if you don't have time to eat mm -hmm. something else, you go instead of a sandwich, sometimes you go for an empanada. But it's this is a, an Argentinian recipe that I really like. And it's a very much meaty empanada, but it has some raisins and some olives inside. Then the next one is an arepa. So I learned to do arepas. Yes, those ones from a friend in Colombia. An arepa is uh, uh, the dough is made of corn. So it's it's so important for all the Americas. As we are um, we we are surrounded by corn, and we have so many preparations from tamales to to tacos. Basically, everything is related to corn. So this would be the the the, the dough. It's um, Colombian. Um, but the filling is from Venezuela, which is called Reina Pepiada. And it's a uh, chicken and it has a beautiful story with beauty queens in Venezuela. But mm. <laughs> the filling has uh, uh, avocado that we love and um, chicken and some cilantro. Cilantro gives so much flavor. Oh, yeah, we love use it. cilantro. Okay. And we love Definitely it Definitely taste the cilantro. Yeah, and we use it a lot in different mm -hmm. soups and preparations. So I that is... I had a... Anything like this, quite like this, that texture of that of the corn. So because because you have the the texture of the corn, but it's not like eating a, a tamal, and it's thicker than having even a gordita, right? A gordita would be like a thicker um, a tortilla, but this one is even thicker, and um, it's pre pre cooked corn that you have to buy. And I usually get the, the harina pan from uh, Colombia. The other three that you have to decide, that is the Peruvian one, causa, and causa peruana. And it's a potato that it's another ingredient. We have the International Center for the Potato in my country. <laughs> and it's uh, one of the tubers that could really get to the moon, basically. It's, um, in this case, it's a, a mashed potatoes with lemon and chili, Peruvian chili, ají amarillo, and it has whatever you have at home for a filling. So if you don't have anything, just put a piece of lettuce in there. But mm. if you have, in this case, I had some tuna with mm -hmm. uh, um, mayo and, and avocado, and it has a beautiful shrimp on top because I had the shrimps at home. But you can put whatever you want. So you can have it um, like a very expensive meal, or you could have it like a very simple meal. And as uh, potatoes are very common, and um, and cheap in Peru, we eat this a lot. Plus, I think it's delicious and very refreshing. Mm -hmm. very so, good. it it, it uh, a lot of people were eating this for Easter, for example. 
Mm. The other two things that I included are, uh, one is fried yuca. And I, I did a guacamole because I thought, oh, I'm not including anything from Mexico here. We have so much Mexican heritage in this city. So I did a guacamole. It's just homemade guacamole. And the yuca is another root that it's very important from, for the Americas. And it's the kind of, of ingredient that you can see even in colonial text. So it's been through the whole process of and the development of the Americas, um, the domestication. And it's very common. Plus, yuca is tapioca, so Asian communities also in the world eat a lot of it. So it's a very, very common one, and we love it. It's very starchy, very good for your yeah. stomach as it, it, well. Well, it has a consistency of a potato, you know, just like It a, is. A, yeah. It is like a thicker, starchy potato, basically. Mm -hmm. And finally, you have a plantain, mm. because, I mean, we eat yeah. lots of plantains. We love them. And that one, because I wanted to represent also Puerto Rico. So it's a, it's a fried plantain, a patacón, and it has mayo ketchup, which is very much, it's, it's a mix of ketchup and mayonnaise that it's very traditional of Puerto Rico. So I thought I, 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 I was mm. just going to put some sauce. I really like this one. It's very good. <laughs> <laughs> it's very good. And when it's recently fried and you fry it and you mash it and then um, you press it and then you refry it, it's, it's really good. So that's the um, display of savory I had. And I wanted to represent all the ingredients, yuca, potato, plantains, corn, that are very important, I think, for the Americas. Yeah, well, those are all very delicious. Um, I really like plantain, plantain bananas. Those are good in any way I've, I've ever eaten them. Oh, there, there are recipes sometimes in, um, I was working in a project in Ecuador, and the empanada, the dough, was made of, of plantain and filled with cheese. Oh, so, yeah, yeah there are so awesome. many, I mean, the, the ways in soups and appetizers, dinners, uh, and you can have it ripe or you can have it um, green, and it gives you endless possibilities. It's, it's really a beautiful plant. So we've tried these six items here. How would you uh, integrate that into any of your classrooms? What I, I know that you've made food in your classes and you, you tried to make sure students understand some of the origins and how, with a group of 30 students how, how or do they make some of the food too or I try to bring some, especially at the beginning. I have uh, two guests, for example. One is from Spain, and we do the gazpacho there. Um, and and really, it's it's um, it's something very important, especially at the beginning of the semester. But I also bring someone from Honduras, and some students are really like, oh, we had no idea that we had so many people from Central America in Wichita. So, and we bring uh, something made of corn. Um, in that case, usually I bring. Um, Pupusas, that it's very, uh, it's a very common thing to have in Wichita, I think, after, let's say, Mexican food, and they really enjoy that. Um, but sometimes I ask them, hey, just let me know what you want to bring, what you want to do. And for extra credit, for example, I give them some ingredients. So I give them um, tapioca flour, I give them corn flour, and they, they use their imagination. Sometimes we work with rice paper, and it's amazing the kind of things that they do. 
and uh, things that they can do even in the dorms. So it's it's simple things that they can do. But uh, there is a moment during the semester that they do a presentation about an ingredient and they work in groups to do that. And um, they're not forced to bring something for the rest. <laughs> but if they want, I mean, it's like brownie points and literally brownie points. <laughs> so they can just uh, bring something. But uh, they do a lot of research projects. Like they go to a restaurant, for example, and they have to criticize the restaurant thinking about authenticity and how sometimes we are even charge for that concept of authentic uh, food. And then they do other projects around the ingredients, about, around countries, about immigrant products and uh, podcasts, movies. There's so much in the sense of food that we can use in class. So yeah. it, it's always a fantastic uh, class to teach. I'm going to have to stop eating these. <laughs> uh, the, the <clears throat> this particular dish. What do you call this? Um, this is the... Uh, Patacón. Plantain, these, these yes. really good. It's like, you know, French fries and... Um. And that, the mayo ketchup, yes. Uh, it's, it's, yeah. it's addictive, I think. So before we talk about the sweets, what other kinds of um, projects are you working on and what, what do you see? Oh, uh, uh, well, food-related projects, I'm working in two other. One working, one uh, about the food system of the city with uh, uh, Laila Cure, a professor from um, industrial engineering. And we try to approach the problems of the city about food swamps, uh, food inequality, but from completely di different perspectives. I come from culture, she comes from industrial engineering. So she sees something completely different and it's it's been a blast to work with her. And the other project that I'm working on is with Dr. Enrique Navarro, with Jay Price, because they're such a wonderful team to work with. And we are going to go to Dodge City, to Garden City and to Liberal uh, during the summer. And we're going to be recording food waste, food traditions, fiestas, celebrations, quinceañeras, um, religions, festivities that they do, Latinos do in that area. And we got a grant from the Library of Congress. Oh, wow. So it's it's really, really a gift for us to, to be able to go to these areas and and to showcase, because you know, in all these areas, we have all these meat factories and all these people work so hard, all these immigrants from different areas of Central America and Mexico, uh, work so hard in, in those areas, and they're just trying to give their kids the best that they can, including these um, celebrations and, of course, education. So it's yeah. going to be a lovely project to work from this summer to the end of the year, probably. Yeah, and just being, we recently, the provost and I and uh, another vice president just traveled out to Garden City, Dodge City, um, Liberal, to find out, um, and those were visits to community colleges, to find out what kinds of things can we help with our community, um, what kinds of expert expertise that we can share. So this is another one, another example of that. So that's great that you're doing that. Okay, so now we have a plate of sweets, um, four different items. Once you explain to the listeners yes. what you have uh, here. You want to start with? Which uh, one do you want me to Up to you. Flan? Okay, that's what this yes. one is, right? This, yeah. this is flan. I just made it mini because uh, why not? <laughs> mm -hmm. Flan is one of those things that we eat all, I think it's a custard. Yeah. So um, we eat it everywhere, but every country adds a variation. So Puerto Rico will add sometimes cheese, coconut in different parts of South America. But um, uh, in Spain, of course, they have it. And I really like it because it's, um, it's very common 
to have it in different different ways in Latin America. So that's for me one of the things that I like the most. Choco flan, the Mexican yeah. variation with chocolate, it's really good. It has a sort of a um, kind of a burnt sugar kind of. A, you you have to put uh, when you put it because it's it's uh, inverted basically, right? You turn mm -hmm. it around so it's upside down. But uh, at the beginning you have to do some caramel, and in Mexico sometimes they put cajeta which is this caramel, um, goat milk caramel. But I, I usually do it at home, so I just burn sugar yeah. and, and do it uh, first. And that's probably one the most complicated part of the flan, I would say. The second thing that you have is a chocolate. It's just dark chocolate and has a um, feeling of dulce de leche and cream because the dulce de leche is very heavy, it's very sweet. And then it has a cherry that has been soaked in pisco. That mm -hmm. is a Peruvian drink. It's a Peruvian brandy. Yeah, I can tell. Yes, I should have told <laughs> really you, right? <laughs> but it's very, um, I think it balances the, the, the sweetness of the What's dulce this? de leche. Dulce de leche and um, uh, whipped cream, just to lower the, the so sweetness like, of like it. So it's like a little chocolate cup with yes. that. Mm, and the chocolate cup, really I, I did it from um, dark chocolate. So it, mm. should, it should bring the that sweetness That is down. really good. And that... Added a little brandy. <laughs> yes. I the pisco. The pisco is like 45% <laughs> alcohol, I believe. So. There's a lot in there, folks. <laughs> yeah. They've been soaking for two days now. <laughs> so um, That you might like because it's chocolate. And it's just a chocolate turron, we call it. And it's covered with dulce de leche and a chocolate ganache. And some fruits on top to, to lower the, the sweetness of it. But mm. it's just, a, I, I don't know. Um, we don't eat so much chocolate, even though chocolate is from the Americas. I mean, we, we are producers of mm -hmm. South America. We're producers of chocolate and coffee, cacao and, and coffee. But sometimes we don't have as many desserts. We go more for um, these other kinds of, of, of flavors. But chocolate is something that everyone likes. And yeah. you and my country, we love torta de chocolate, which is a chocolate cake. And, and this so has uh, raspberries. We too. have raspberries. We don't need, if you go to a market here, one main difference you're going to see is that we don't have a lot of uh, berries. But uh, there are some, for example, in my country, you have some Andean berries. Um, but in general, we eat strawberries, but not so much the other berries as you would do in the United States. Oh, and finally, that is an alfajor. An alfajor, it's a... Um, uh, just a, a cookie. cookie. Yeah. Yes, it's mm -hmm. it's two cookies somehow filled with uh, dulce de leche, and this is a I'm recipe. Make a mess, yes, <laughs> this is a recipe without cornstarch. That's my my. It's just mm. flour. I know this is really good. Yes, and an alfajor. Uh, I really like it because even the name it has this everything that starts with al. Well, not everything, but a lot of words have uh, Arab origin from Spain. So it has this has come here to the Americas after mm. traveling in mm. Spain for centuries. And this is a recipe of Arab origin, for example. So if you like um, kind of a shortbread type cookie yes. with um, some caramel kind of. A, yes, uh, it's, it's the dulce de leche inside. Um, yes, this you write and it's really kind of light. And I mean, I'm sure not light in calories, but it's not a heavy kind of. A I think that uh, th that's the idea that you can. I mean, the, the cookie, because it has no sugar, it lowers the filling, the, the, mm -hmm. the sweetness of the filling. Mm. So it's a very much balance, I would say. And it has powdered sugar on top of it. Uh, yes, I'm just, just to make it nice. Just to make it nice. Well, one of the things 
Sorry. Um, one of the things uh, that that I've noticed in all the food that I've sh shared with you or, or you've given over, uh, brought over to the house, is just how it's presented. It's beautiful. Thank it's you. It's like a little uh, picturesque. Um, and hopefully the listeners um, can grasp that from um, what we're doing here. But if not, you can go on to our t YouTube channel and actually see the food. So I appreciate um, you. Sp I know this, this. You just didn't do this in a couple of hours. And so I so much appreciate you doing that um, for the benefit of our listeners and for a community. It's great to hear what you're doing in, in terms of the study of food and culture. Um, looking forward to uh, possibly having you back so you can bring some other delicious uh, treats for us. So thank you so much, Chio, for being here. Thank you, Rick, for inviting me. It's always a pleasure. You're welcome. And thank you, Shocker Nation, for listening today. Be sure to rate, subscribe, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. We're taking a summer break from podcasting, but I'll return in August with new guests and new highlights from Wichita State University. Go Shockers!